Well, good evening, everyone. Greet you for the second time on the Lord's Day. As you know, it's fairly unusual that you get me again in the evening. I'm sure you're all fortunate for that, but with all the dozens of pastors on our staff, the vacation schedules of comings and goings were such that I was the candidate best uh, situated to preach tonight. John just returned the end of last week, and we didn't want to throw him right in, and the other men had other things on their plates. So uh, I thought I would react tonight to, uh, I get this question about different things, but one subject I get a question about from time to time is, Pastor, I don't hear you preach very much about the second coming of Christ. The implication is I'm dodging the subject or something. Um, Folks know that we don't follow all the uh, things that some evangelical churches believe on this subject. Maybe they think I'm intentionally quiet. I'm not by any means. I'm happy to address it any time we face it, but when you preach through books, what happens is sometimes you don't face subjects for long periods of time if it doesn't happen to be in the book you're dealing with. I thought I would go back to a message from quite a few years ago, early in my ministry here, in the Gospel of Luke, and spent quite a bit of time reworking it, so it's really a new sermon. But I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 12 as I look at this subject, not in terms of the events of the second coming. That's not what this text is about. If you were hoping to get all your questions about the events of Christ's return spelled out, that's not really what's being addressed. But what is being addressed is the believer's look of awaiting that great event, awaiting it in faith and hope. And I believe that here in Luke, this is one of the early times that Jesus brought this subject up, at least that we have recorded, uh, as he addressed it, began to bring it up in uh, teaching for his disciples. By the way, we'll, we'll come to quite a few things about this subject when we finally get closer to the end of Matthew, because there's a great deal in Matthew as we return to that. But for tonight, uh, listen as I read Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Jesus, of course, is the speaker. Be dressed and ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, 
my master is taking a long time coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with fewer blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is God's word. And Father, we ask tonight that you would help us to so understand this, that it would build in us an expectation and a joy as we anticipate the climactic events that are yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know, maybe you read this in the newspaper or you know from firsthand experience that earlier this year or even the end of last year as brides, would-be brides were planning for their weddings, a lot of them got out the calendar of 2007 and realized there was a unique opportunity. And they were eager to get the day of July 7th, 2007, for obvious reasons. Their husbands would always remember 7707. At least they would be beaten with many blows if they did not remember those easy numbers. Now, amazingly, we didn't have a wedding here that day. But 11 years before, there was a similar issue regarding a, an unusual date that came up in 1996. I read something that I've not forgotten that happened in South America, in Colombia. South America which, of course, is a Roman Catholic country, very widespread establishment of the Roman Catholic Church, there was a wave of panic connected with the approach of the date of June 6, 1996. Since this would be the sixth day of the sixth month in a year ending in six, the rumor got out and spread like a wildfire among the populace of Colombia that this number of the beast from Revelation meant that June 6th was going to be the end of the world. And therefore, because they follow a religion that largely thrives on superstition, people rushed to their local priests in great fear, confessing their sins in unusual numbers, and particularly it was noted the huge numbers of children who were brought in for baptism the preceding week. It was said that 20,000 baptisms happened in Colombia the weekend of June 1st and 2nd, 1996, which was 10 times the number of any normal weekend. Superstition, fear, panic, misunderstanding, all these things and more have accrued or pertained to the event of the second coming of Christ, an event which we are taught will be the consummation of history. It will mean the claiming of Christ's elect, his people of faith, brought to him for their final dwelling. It will mean the resurrection of the dead, both believers and non-believers, some for judgment and some 
for their resurrection bodies in glory. And it will mean that final judgment throne. Now people look upon these events or the set of events that's involved there with mixed passions. Some people with a kind of hysteria and frankly some people with cold indifference. Many people end up distorting the subject. They take symbolic passages, prophecies that were clearly intended to be understood symbolically, literalize them, make something ridiculous of them, and end up with plans or agendas for the final coming, which are no part of the original understanding of Scripture. But other people simply bypass the Lord's return and think maybe it's a doctrine for fanatics, or they just will talk about what many joke and say, well, pan-millennialism, it'll all pan out in the end. Well, the Bible does teach that Jesus Christ, who was born of Mary on this earth for the first time as a visible, historic human baby will return to be a historic, visible personage on the earth once again. And this time, not quietly, not in a little corner somewhere where a few shepherds will be summoned to be the witnesses, but loudly and visibly and triumphantly. Acts 1.11 says that the ascension of Christ, an angel actually spoke to the apostles and said to them, this same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, shall come in like manner as you have seen him go, visibly, grandly, miraculously. What else can we say in like manner means? I don't intend to go down this side path tonight, but we know that in like manner is not going to be a secret rapture as the saints are taken away from the earth for a period of time and then Christ at some later time comes again. You may have been taught that for years as I was as a child. I believe with all my heart and soul that that is an error. The Bible does not teach it. It's in the famous novels, the Left Behind novels, which are fiction. They may be entertaining to read, but they are not accurate doctrine. The whole idea of the secret rapture of the saints originated in the mid-19th century with the Plymouth Brethren sect in, in England. Fine people, godly people. But John Nelson Darby derived this, taught it, and it became extremely popular to where some people today will almost think you couldn't possibly be an evangelical Christian if you don't believe it. Well, I'm afraid it deals with a kind of mathematics from the book of Daniel that are really hard to construe and very hard to fit with the plain teachings of the remainder of the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4 is the primary picture of the actual event of the return of Christ. And it's a return not at all in secret, but as a noisy, grand, stupendous event. We're told there's the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. You certainly cannot fit a secret rapture into that. In Acts 17, Paul was preaching about a similar subject, and he was speaking of Christ in Acts 17.31, and he said, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, and he proved this by raising him from the dead. The primary emphasis Paul put there on the return of Christ was the day in which Christ would come as judge. In some places in Scripture, it's called the day of the Lord. 
And there are other times occasionally when it's just referred to as that day. And the English translators have put a capital D to say there's only one day like this. You can't mistake it for any other. The Lord Jesus urged, even before he he began to give any kind of explanations of this, and, and really the explanations as to timing are not nearly what we wish they would be from the words of Christ himself in places like Matthew in the Olivet Discourse. We'll be looking at that in coming months. But what he urged primarily was how we would live and how we would await this. Not that we would be able to unfold big charts and show exactly how the thing would happen, but that we would live in a sense of awareness, a sense of anticipation and hope, and be saying in our hearts that great unusual biblical word, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Because when he comes, we know that is the consummation. That's the grand goal of everything we hope for. Now here in Luke 12, I know you don't have the whole context of this, but it's a, it's a teaching section of, of the Scripture, not too much unlike the middle part of Matthew where we're going to return next Sunday morning, Lord willing. And Jesus is teaching on a variety of subjects, and he raises in by means of a parable of these servants and their absent master, the idea of how to wait or in what spirit to await this event that the disciples were just beginning to hear about. Whether they had even heard about it at all before this is a question. And this is a time when they don't yet understand the cross or the resurrection coming. So you can imagine when he throws something like this in, servants waiting and and that's going to be them waiting for him, the question marks are filling the air. What is he talking about? When will this be? What does all this mean? Of course, Jesus taught many things that only made sense after the cross and resurrection and ascension. Now, every believer who trusts in Christ by the redeeming grace of God should be able to look at this event and look at it. Yes, unusual. Yes, hard to get your hands around and get your mind around, but nevertheless, an event of joy and an event of glorious gain. For it is literally the finale, the last act, the exclamation point, the accomplishment of our entire faith. Now, those who doubt Christ and doubt his lordship and who live chained within a materially oriented worldview, for them the second coming is going to be something fraught with absolute terror, an irrevocable loss it's hinted at even here in this passage. For all of us, there is difficulty at times in maintaining a hope that looks for that coming as we go on and the sun rises and the sun sets and our lives proceed and we work and we retire and we die and And maybe with the rest of the world, we say, where after all these centuries is this coming? Let us see how the Lord encourages us to have a right hope towards this event. Tonight, first of all, I want you to see in verses 38 and 40, how, or 38 to 40, how he teaches an expectation for an absent and yet returning master, returning to his household. And the assertion is made here so loud and clear, you can't possibly miss it. It's made other ways in other places, but it's made here in this early 
teaching on this subject. Verse 40 couldn't be more clear. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, the amazing thing is that much of the American evangelical second coming industry that flourished in the early half, at least, of the 20th century, flourished on the theme or on the goal of finding out when we would expect him and getting the date. And even as a young person, I never could quite understand why there were so many prophecy speakers and others who were pretty sure, now they wouldn't necessarily put an exact date, but they were pretty sure that they could pinpoint within a framework of world events when we should expect him. And I always wanted, you know, I was never had the boldness to do it. We used to have one, uh, we, at least a few times in my childhood, I can remember prophecy conferences in my church when a speaker would come for the weekend. I remember the chart across the front of the sanctuary. Always looked strange to me. And I always wanted to go up and tug the man's coattail and say, Sir, could you talk to me about Luke twelve forty? No one will know the day or the hour when to expect him. Because many times these individuals gave me strong implications that they knew the hour or something very close to it. In 1999, you remember perhaps as we neared the end of the 20th century, we went through all of these tremors. Y2K. Every computer in America was supposed to blow up. We were all going to you know, have to have years of food stocked and generators and the whole thing. Generator makers made out like bandits. I'm, I'm serious. Did you? I actually checked this out. I don't often look at, at the want ads for people selling used stuff, but I did look in early 2000. There were a lot of generators for sale in early 2000 in the newspaper. I could tell you the name of a respected Reformed scholar and preacher, and I won't because I don't want to cast dispersions at him, who actually moved his main residence away from a suburban location to a cabin that he had already owned quite a ways out, away from any city, and stockpiled the cabin with basic food supplies because he expected a total breakdown in society on January 1, 2000. You'd be shocked if I told you who it was. I'm not going to tell you. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, No man knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Only the Father knows this. So knowing the date isn't what it's all about. Second Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. When do you expect the thief? You know, nobody ever expects the thief. They buy the security system the next day after the thief came. Not the day before. Christ did not intend us to learn a date in which we would dress in white and gather someplace as his church to sing hymns and await him. That is not what he calls for. He calls for us to live today in our individual callings, whatever those might be, giving ourselves to those things we've been called to and yet keenly alive to the fact that in terms of physical presence, not spiritual presence, but physical presence, the Lord has departed for a time, but will return. Not too long ago, I was watching a couple of rabbits who live under our shed in our backyard and graze on our lawn. 
we're friendly to rabbits. We don't do anything to them. But there's a cat or two in our neighborhood. We don't have one, but neighbors do. And I was watching a couple of rabbits grazing, having a good time in the clover, and I realized that they were both quite aware of the fact that there was a cat in the next yard. The cat was also quite aware of them. You know what a cat's tail does, that twitching thing. And he was deciding, can I make this long run and land on one of them? It was a ways away. Those rabbits went on feeding. But they were acutely aware of their enemy. And they were ready to act at any moment. Now, that might be a bad comparison because we don't react to Christ appearing as a rabbit to a cat of which it is afraid because the cat would kill it. Christ isn't going to kill us. But could we think of ourselves in any sense as having that kind of an awareness, going about our business, what God has called us to do, but constantly aware of another presence not far away? We will be surprised by Christ's second advent. No matter how deep our knowledge of the Bible, no matter how many books you read about prophecy, you will be surprised. And I recommend to you that when the radio preacher starts telling you that he knows the date, turn off the program and don't listen anymore because he doesn't. There's quite a difference between being surprised and being shocked. Believers are going to be surprised at this fateful day. Unbelievers are going to be absolutely and ruinously shocked. There's a great difference. In verses 35 and 36 here, Jesus used a very vivid metaphor when he said, Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like those who await the master returning from a wedding banquet. This readiness, to me, the natural understanding of this text is, what is, what is he expecting these servants to do? Stand at attention at the front door? Never go inside and sleep? Never go out on an errand? Never spend any time with their families? Not, I don't think so. But he was saying, servants, you should be performing your duty in all the same ways and with all the same efficiency as you would be performing it if the master were right here dwelling in the house. What's the best way to be ready for the master? Do what you do every day under his direction. Polish the silver. You know, keep fresh light bulbs in the, in the lights on the, out in front. Uh, tend the garden. Polish the woodwork or whatever it is the servant does. Do your job. Sure, you can go to sleep, but just be aware that there's going to be a knock in the night. And if it's your job to go let the master in, you better be ready to do that job. Don't keep him waiting. The clear implication here is simply that the servant would do what is expected because what he doesn't want, as he speaks about it later in verse 45 and following, is for the servants to start to get a different idea of what it is to be a servant and think they can beat up on people or take advantage or raid the wine cellar or something else and stop being servants. What he's looking for, by the way, the King James Version, instead of saying be dressed and ready for service, it says let your loins be girded. And we think that has to do with the idea of men then wearing a long garment that might get in your way if you had to work in the garden or do something really active, you'd take that long garment and stick it through your belt so that you could do active service. 
be ready to do the work that you're called to do. And that's the best way to prepare for the hour. I think Martin Luther gave a wonderful illustration of this. Once he was asked, it's in his Table Talk uh, book, that's uh, sort of a little book of miscellanies that Luther contributed different devotions or discussions. And Luther said, or someone said, well, Dr. Luther, what would you do if you knew that the Lord was to return in two days? Luther gave an answer that he intended to instruct people with. He said, well, first, on the first day, I would go out and plant a tree. And then I would go down to the church and preach my heart out. Now, you wonder, what was he talking about? Plant a tree? You know, if Christ is coming to take his church away, Luther, don't you understand? Nobody's going to be there to enjoy the tree. What do you mean? I think clearly what he meant was he, he would do the things that a normal person would do. If he had intended to plant a tree, he'd plant a tree. He'd be about his business. And then he would preach the Word of God, not in a secondary fashion, but with all his passion, calling people to come to Christ. He was trying to stress the importance of being faithful to our daily callings. Let your lamps be lit, Jesus said. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the chapter after the epic scene that we have in in 1 Thessalonians 4 of Christ's return being described, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 5, Jesus said, You are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are the sons of light and sons of day. Let us not be like others who are asleep, but be alert and self-controlled. Now, there it is again, alert and self-controlled, living in a way that would be pleasing to the master. If he were watching you, if he were there every day seeing what you're doing, he would say, that's good. That's what you're supposed to be doing. It seems to say to me that the people who are then the most heavenly-minded, if you want to call, call people heavenly-minded who are looking for a returning Savior, are also the people who are the most earthly good in terms of duty, in terms of, you know, if your job is chopping wood, you chop wood. If your job is repairing automobiles, you repair them. If your job is preaching the gospel, preach the gospel. But do that which God has called you to do, raising children. Be found raising your children in the best way you know how to do it until the Lord comes. The implication here that we need our lamps lit, and, and also what was said in First Thessalonians 5 about being sons of the light, reminds us that we live in a world that's very dark. People don't begin to have any idea of this truth other than as a joke or something that you know, weird fundamentalists believe. And they live with their spiritual eyes closed to the glories of Christ. They live upon fantasies and shadows and darkness but again, 1 Peter 2.9 says Christ has brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So live in the light. Live as bearers of the light of the truth of Christ. He's given us light to see our lives now and our future, at least to the extent of understanding the result that's coming. We have this hope that tells us no matter how dark current affairs are, no matter how many countries break out in terrorism or 
get nuclear weapons to use against us or whatever's going to happen that's going to threaten us and our children and our grandchildren, there is an amazing dawn that is going to break forth. We're living in the evening. There's a place where the Scripture says the the night is far advanced, but the day is at hand. Christ cannot fail to return in the brightness and the glory of one of his titles that he's given in Scripture when he's called the day spring from on high. It's one of my favorite titles for Christ. Maybe you're a person who never sees the sunrise. If you don't get up early enough, you don't see it. I think it's the greatest time of day when the day is just beginning. Christ is the day spring, the beginning of an eternal day. While other people are snoring through their lives in a spiritual stupor, we are people who have one clear eye at least trained at the front door of history, watching for the Lord and Master of the house who is due to return. And hopefully he will find us energetically, skillfully, with all our heart and spirit, going about the tasks he has called us to be, being a wife or a husband or a parent or a faithful employee, being a prayer warrior, being a servant in the church, being a Christian witness. These are the things he wants his servants to be doing. Now, secondly, I point to Luke twelve forty one to 48, where there's a solemn element here that has to be mentioned. An element, even in this early mention of the return of Christ, of judgment on those who are unprepared for his return. Jesus said what sounds like a very strange and fierce thing here, that some are going to be cut in pieces for their negligence, for their unwillingness to be faithful. And here is just one of the many places where when he speaks about this final coming, Matthew, we're going to see quite a few of uncomfortable things in the lips of, of Jesus when he speaks about the last days. And he describes in different fashions, in different terminology, a real hell. For those who may have heard his name, who may have some awareness of a truth about him, but no true enlightenment of the Spirit so that they know him as a Lord and Savior. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 describes something about this day, and it says there that they, the unbelievers, will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord on that day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and marveled at by all who have believed. Two absolutely opposite destinations. His people marveling at him, worshiping him, welcoming him as he receives them unto himself, and others punished with everlasting destruction. On that day, a mere knowledge that Christ was a person who existed, a mere nodding acquaintance with him, a mere church membership is not going to avail anyone. Now, this isn't something for us to fear if we know Christ. Our condemnation was already poured out on him at the cross. There's no wrath left for the Christian to face. But there is a fear and a shock do those who maybe know the name of Jesus, but don't know him as Lord. We've all been part of 
surprise parties, I'm sure, at different times in our lives. Sometimes they succeed. Sometimes the person gets word of it and just has to act surprised. I've been part of a couple successful ones, and it is interesting to watch a person be genuinely stunned when all the friends jump out and, surprise, happy birthday or happy anniversary, whatever it is. Well, that's a great kind of shock to experience. But the shock being described here for unbelief is not great. It's absolutely stunning and woeful in every respect. The alarm for some who have relied upon what people call churchianity is going to be devastating. If they have been lulled into thinking that a mere nodding acquaintance with Christ is enough and they know him not. There's some beautiful prayers in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, especially the older version, the 1928 version. There's a prayer in that Book of Common Prayer that says this, Lord Imprint upon our hearts such a dread of thy judgments and such a grateful sense of thy goodness as may make us both afraid and ashamed to offend thee. Keep in our thoughts a lively remembrance of that great day in which we must give an account of all words and deeds and actions before him whom thou hast appointed judge of the quick and the dead, thy Son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, Lord, give us a lively remembrance of that day. In short, what we're doing with Christ today, as one person has said, it counts forever. Now quickly, a third point I've not even mentioned is something that it's almost hidden in this text, but we should raise it, and I'm not sure I can tell you entirely what it means, but it ought to be noticed. Verse 37 speaks of, something that sounds very unusual, a rare delight and privilege uh, that awaits those who look for Christ. We read there, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes, for I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at table, and he will come and wait on them. Maybe you never even saw that before. This might be one of the most splendid New Testament promises made to Christians. I don't know what exactly it involves, but it is saying to us that the Lord of glory who comes, comes to bestow honor and privilege upon those who by faith have faithfully served him and trusted him and are ready to welcome him. Maybe you get in your mind a picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper there. If he's, he's kneeling down and doing service, that you say, he's, wait a minute, he's not supposed to be serving. Masters don't do that. Servants do that. Well, one thing I think we're being reminded here is that Jesus already served us in a lowly way when he went to the cross to bear our pain. He washed our feet and all the rest of us when he died and shed his blood and was condemned before the holy justice of God in our place. I don't know exactly what this involves or or exactly what this means. Like so many other things about the second coming, it's tantalizing, but it's not clear exactly. But it is seeming to say here that Christ, the exalted Lord of the universe, delights to serve his elect. He takes delight in us. 
And he's going to see that we are going to receive honors. How amazing. Why should we get honors? But this is his way. What a Lord he is. What a remarkable Christ he is. There are other places that allude to that day and the goodness of it. Isaiah 25, 6 mentions it as a day of enjoyment for God's people. Prophetically saying, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food and a banquet of aged wine and the best of meats. He will swallow up death forever, and the sovereign Lord will wipe all tears from their eyes. Revelation 19.9 calls that, quite simply, the wedding supper of the Lamb. When do we put on our best banquets ordinarily for weddings? Imagine the celebration Christ is preparing for his servants who he desires to welcome. If you are sealed by faith in Jesus Christ, in the basic sense, you are ready for that stunning great day. John read at the beginning of the service from Revelation 1, the promise that the, the, what we will see in some form, we, we still can't imagine it even when it's told to us that he will come on the clouds and every eye will see him. You know, he came the first time in an obscure little corner, one little tiny segment of people in one tiny place in one year of time saw him. The Scripture says when he comes the next time, it will be absolutely the most public event of the history of the planet. Every eye will see him at once. No one will be left out, no matter where they are or who they are. If a believer dies before he comes, as millions have and presumably more will, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, our mortal bodies will not miss it. They will not miss it for those who who are with Christ already, will be reunited with their risen bodies, which will be glorified. If the earth is somehow devastatingly destroyed, the planet itself, that won't cut us off from it. Second Peter 3 has another aspect of his coming in which it talks about the earth being purged by fire. I used to read that and think, that's awful. I don't want to be alive then. But then I realize this is actually a work of God's blessing, preparing our final home. And I don't know how he'll bring us through that, but he will. And we will dwell with him in a perfected world in glorified bodies like the body of Christ himself. Yes, there are mysteries. Mystery upon mystery upon mystery regarding the exact happenings of the end time Events And those who ever think they're going to get them all spelled out by taking a course or reading the right book, I will discourage you here and now. But don't turn away from the event. Don't forget about the event because the result that it brings for us is a great certainty and a wonderful result indeed. Do you have a freedom in belonging to Christ to be able to live without worldly fear today of whatever is coming. You see, part of this anticipation of Christ's coming is what allows us to face the kind of world we live in. Iraq's blowing up. The terrorists are everywhere. Oh, apparently the Minneapolis Bridge went down by itself, but who knows when the bombs will take five more down somewhere. This is the kind of world we live in, and we're fearful. We look around. We say, what's going to happen? It's awful. Ultimately, there's nothing to fear. 
because Christ is going to bring all things to the, to the end that God has appointed. Now, you know, I've talked to Christians who say sometimes, and I certainly can feel it myself, I say, well, all right, you know, I, I do believe in that, hard as it is to conceptualize, but you know what? I like living in the world. I like my life. I like sunrises and sunsets and my family and my friends and, and my church and, and my occupation and my home. What's going to happen? Everything's going to be torn apart. That's pretty threatening. Well, anything with a lot of unknowns in it has a certain amount of threat to it, doesn't it? I wonder how many of you can remember all the way back to the first day of kindergarten. Maybe you can remember a little better to the first day of high school or, or your wedding day. There's some day where there was a real anticipation and yet some real tremor about what you were going to experience. How will it go? How will I get through it? You got through it, didn't you? God brought you through. And even as we think about his coming with a little bit of that anxiety, there is still, to answer the anxiety, a great undercurrent of joy. Joy that I believe when that day comes will just burst right out of us spontaneously as we cry, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come and reign. Worthy is the Lamb. Come, Lord Jesus. When our sons reach their older college years, maybe I'm setting a dangerous precedent for parents here, but we decided at 20, 21 or so, they'd been very responsible young men for the most part. We said, all right, you've outgrown having a specific curfew for when you have to be home at night. You judge. And if you're responsible about it and reasonable about it, we'll leave it in your judgment. And we started going to bed most weekends with one or maybe two or sometimes even three sons still out Friday night, Saturday night. And we had a habit that the porch light was turned on if a son was not in the house. If you knew where we lived and you drove by late at night and there was a porch light on, there was only one reason for that. There was a son not in his bed. And the light to us represented our expectation. Son, we know you're coming back. And when you come back, you're welcome. You're home. We didn't know exactly when he would appear, but our hopes were firm that he would be home eventually that night. St. Augustine wrote once, He who loves the coming of the Lord is not the person who affirms it is far off, nor the one who says it is very near. Rather, Augustine said, It is he who awaits the day with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. Let your life of following the calling that God has put you in, whatever role you bear. Fulfill that role as a faithful servant, just as if the master was in the room with you. And then your life, I think, will be a beacon of welcome, burning for him. Let a lamp of perseverance shine as you pursue your calling from Christ, believing his promises, trusting his word, Give yourself wholeheartedly to every duty he has put before you. And let your life be one in, that is invested in some way so that the gospel is made more and more to shine in your immediate vicinity in the dark place where we live. 
keep your lamps lit for the king, the great king, is certainly coming. Amen. May it be so. Father,